thank you all for coming back this afternoon. Uh, most of you, I'm sure, were here this morning to hear uh, Dr. Jonathan Sarfati uh, go over the, the uh, compatibility of the Bible and science. So much good information for us. We're glad to have him uh, be willing to take the time this afternoon to let us ask some questions directly to him. So I'm not going to take much of his time. So I want to say thanks for coming back, and I'm going to turn it over to him. Uh, I wanted to kind of feed the funnel as we get started with a question for him. We were talking about yesterday, um, what about flat earth? You guys have maybe seen on the internet or read on online folks uh, in this growing trend to uh, to say that we live on a flat earth. And I think he's interacted some with this. So Dr. Safardi, come on up and and I pronounced his name wrong. I stood here saying, yeah, Sarfati. Saying I'm going to say it right, I said it wrong. Thank yeah, you. Okay, well, okay, sure. Um, it's really quite interesting. Now, the point is, I bet how many of you have heard the idea that when Columbus set sail around the world, everyone else laughed at him because they believed in a flat earth? Have you ever heard that? You know, it's an utter, complete lie. You see, this is an example of government school education indoctrinating kids in this utter lie which was invented by 19th century Bible skeptics who tried to discredit the Bible and the church and Christianity to try to undermine opposition to Darwinian evolution. But as a historical fact, no one, almost no one ever believed in a flat earth. You can go through the history of the Christian church, as been documented by uh, Dr. Bertram, Jeffrey Burton Russell, and he documents probably it might have been uh, two, maybe at most five people who taught a flat earth, but very hundreds, thousands of Christians who taught a round earth, a spherical earth. That's been the universal Christian view right throughout church history before and after Columbus. So there's a lot of false history going on. Now, some uh, people might say the Bible teaches a flat earth, but again, no, it does not. I think the Bible uses language that anyone in any age can read. It's not actually teaching one way or the other, in my opinion, I think, but it's compatible with a global earth. There's nothing in the Bible to contradict a global earth. About the best argument you have for it is this passage from Daniel, uh, which says, If a tree grew strong and the top reached of heavens visible to the end of the whole earth. And that's only possible, they claim, if the earth is flat. But let's look at the context of this. It's a dream, for goodness sake. I mean, how many dreams are realistic? I've had a dream not that long ago where uh, a bit, I was uh, underdressed for church and somehow clothes materialized on me. Okay, it's not real. Uh, people have dreamt of flying. Uh, it's not real, okay? The Pharaoh, remember the Pharaoh in Joseph's time dreamt of cannibalistic cows and cannibalistic ears of wheat? It's not real. So to try to derive a doctrine uh, from something that's not real, uh, from a dream, makes no sense. Here is the dream of the Pharaoh, cannibalistic cows. Okay, so it's, it's a dream to make it say this is teaching. No, it's not a teaching that someone dreamt uh, of a weird large tree. See, if there's a tree there, where is the tree? We should be able to see the tree, shouldn't we? If there's a tree visible, how come no one, where is it? It's a dream. Okay, here's another one. Uh, you have the devil took Jesus to a high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. Okay, again, if there's such a mountain, why can't we see it? 
If you could see the kingdoms from the mountain, you should be able to see the mountain from the kingdoms. You can't, can you? So the point is, it's actually an instant showing, as you see in Luke's um, account of it. Uh, he showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. But now we have... Um, Data projector, we can do that. I mean, devil probably had, could have actually shown Jesus a sight show of the mountains from, from anywhere, the kings around the world. It's not saying that you can actually see the king. You can't see that far. So again, this is the best they have for a flat earth in the Bible. And it really is incredibly uh, unconvincing. A dream and this vision of all the kingdoms, clearly a vision that devil's showing Jesus. Now, when it comes to the history... Here is proof, well, long before Columbus, you know, 700 years before Columbus, you have the Venerable Bede, he's a very respected church historian and monk in Anglo-Saxon England, and he said, we call the earth a globe, you get that? Okay, again, the perfect globe, and if they didn't get it the first time, it's not circular like a shield, but like a ball, so they, they understood it's like a ball. And then you have the greatest um, theologian apologist of the Middle Ages, Thomas Aquinas. He's showing how you go about proving things. So he picked something obvious and understood by almost everyone, the roundness of the earth. He said the physicist proves the earth to be round by one means, the astronomer by another. He assumed that everyone knew that. He didn't have to elaborate. He just assumed that everyone in his time, in the 250 years before Columbus, knew the earth as a globe. And in fact, the middle middle ages, the so the wrongly called dark ages, were where you f- began the university. Universities were an invention of the middle ages, and at the time, every student had to take um, astronomy. And the book they used was this one called The Sphere by Johannes Sacrobosco. Sphere. Well, that's because the Earth's a sphere, okay? And this is the thing they would have learned about that the Earth is a sphere. They knew they were taught that. Everyone knew that. They understood the smallest star we see is bigger than the Earth. They knew how vast outer space was. But they knew it was much vaster than Earth was, okay? They knew the moon reflects sunlight. Therefore, when the Earth gets in the way, it causes a lunar eclipse. They understood that. They were not primitive. Another thing is what the general public knew. Now, I think it's quite clear that the general public was well aware of it because you have this symbol here called the Globus Cruciger, cross-bearing globe, uh, a symbol of royal power. You have the cross, um, a large cross, because that's saying that Jesus is the most important thing, the size was how important he is, and a globe to represent the earth. Now, what do we think? A globe representing a flat earth? Don't understand that. Makes sense if it was a globe representing a global earth and the king held it to so it would say he was given power under Jesus to have dominion over his own realm. So, so it means the royalty and also their subjects understood that the earth is a globe. And then when you look at it, the, the flat earth people are not our friends, you see, because you, who are the leading flat earthers today? You've got a man, Daniel Shenton, he said he believes in evolution and global warming. That's one of the uh, leaders of the flat earth. In the video makers, this man, Eric Dubay, who's a, a neo, literal neo-Nazi, he thinks Hitler was a peace-loving person who was misunderstood. The Holocaust never happened. Um, Jesus never existed. And you have Rob Skeeper, who denies the Trinity. The, the Trinity. 
He doesn't believe the personality of the Holy Spirit. So you've got uh, an utter neo-Nazi, a heretic, and an evolutionist are the founders of the modern flat earth movement. So why would we want to follow them? They're not um, friends of the Bible. Now, as for proof of it, it should be quite clear. I mean, those of you who've been on any sort of voyage, and this is what the Middle Ages people knew. They understood. They, they probably couldn't see a ship on the horizon with that with a naked eye. But what they could do is go on a ship. And come into shore, what they'd notice, of course, is the hills were visible before the beach was. And yet the beach is closer to the ship than the hills are. But because of the curvature of the earth, you see the hills before you see the beach. They, they understood this. And, they, and later on, when they had telescopes, they could see things like hold down. They could see certain things like, um, like we see here. Uh, they understood the term hold down ship as well. Here's an example of hold down ship. And the Navy knew this. You see, navies are very competitive, obviously. But they could work out the distance to a ship by how far it had been was below the horizon. They could work out the ship. They had to get it right, otherwise they'd lose the battle. And we also see the sun obviously goes below the horizon too. That's a thing. It's interesting that now you get the flat earthers who claim that there isn't that the sun is not going around below the flat earth. They believe it's circling above in a plane parallel to the... That's the modern idea. Uh, but the point is we know that's wrong because we see the sun setting. It goes piecemeal below the horizon. And also, as the medieval people knew, the sun's angular size is constant throughout the day. It doesn't change apparent size. And that's because it's so far away compared to the size of the earth that it's the same distance from us wherever we are. If it was in a plane over the flat earth, it would, it would get much smaller. We'll see it. It should be seen like this. If it was doing that, it would become flattened as, as we saw it. If it was a disc, if the sun was a disc, you'd expect to see it. If you see it at an angle, it would appear elliptical it would flatten and it would get smaller and smaller as it gets closer to sunset because it's getting further away it doesn't look like that now as for the bible's language about uh, sunrise and sunset that's just a case of reference frame Uh, like your gps is a car centric reference frame it treats your car as the center of the universe and all the roads are moving around you. You see, in physics, when you're describing motion, you have to tell me what reference frame you're using. And the Bible uses the earth as the reference frame and says sunset and sunrise as we all do today. What's wrong with that? Now, if you're an astronomer, you probably have to understand that the earth is rotating on its axis and it's uh, once a day, it's, it's revolving once a year around the sun from the sun's reference frame. But if you're, for most people, it's good enough to say the sun rises and sun sets. It's not wrong. It's just a different reference frame. It's quite hard to say uh, that the earth is rotated in such a way that the line of sight for the sun is tangential to the horizon. It's harder to say that. Okay, and in fact, the, the other pagan literature did the same sort of thing. You have this famous uh, poem, epic poem called the Aeneid by Virgil, a little bit before Jesus, and he said, "We we set out from harbour, and the lands and cities recede." He's on the boat, but he says the land and cities are moving away from him. But he's saying, from the point of view of someone on the ship, it looks as though the land and city are receding. So it's just simple reference frame like we do uh, all the time and have done right throughout history. 
Now, as for uh, evidence of the round uh, Earth, one obvious one is the different time zones we have. And that's why the modern flat Earth has got this silly idea of the, of the sun moving in a plane above, because that's the only way you can see a different time zone at different uh, places in the world. I, mean, I know if I call my parents, they're in New Zealand. And I showed this to my little granddaughter. It's quite interesting that I could show them common sense things to tell them what the shape of the earth was. Well, um, look, I mean, look where my, my parents, they're actually, it's daylight where they are and it's night where we are. Why do you think that is? And the reason is that my parents are on the opposite side of the earth. They're around here in New Zealand and we are sort of around here, you see, so um, 18 hours apart. So our time zones are possible only on a round earth if we realize the sun is actually the same distance from us. So it's not circling overhead. It's actually um, keeping the same distance because it's much further away. Okay, so some time zones are very strong evidence against this flat earth. And we see Jesus understood this. I mean, he's the creator. He ought to know, wouldn't, shouldn't he? And he talked about this uh, um, second coming thing. Maybe it's, it's whatever this was means. I can't begin into denominational things here. But you've got one instant of time, and you have two in bed, and one taken, one left. So it's at night time. But at the same instant of time, you have two women grinding corn together, one one left, one taken. Okay, That's in the morning time, in the ground corn. Then you have yet another time. At the same instant, you have two men in the field, one taken, one left. So, got one instant of time, but somewhere on the world it's night, another place in the world it's morning, another place on the, on the world it's, it, it's, it's uh, afternoon. And that's only possible if we have a global earth, where, where different parts uh, see the sun at different times. So the Bible, actually, if anything, the Bible is affirming a global earth here and refuting a flat earth in this passage. Now, another very good evidence, and I'm, I'm from the Southern Hemisphere, I can actually say this, but, I mean, any of you guys could talk to people in different parts of the world. If you've got um, Facebook Messenger or um, Skype or whatever, you can actually see for yourself uh, what phase is the moon. Everyone on Earth should say to see the same phase of the moon. Everyone on Earth should have a, a different time zones. You have one person's light, one person's dark. You, you can see this for yourself. But also... As the ancients also knew, we see different constellations depending on where we are. And they knew that even though they were confined to a fairly small geographic region, they knew a bit about Europe and a little bit about Asia and a bit of North Africa, not that much about the Southern Hemisphere. But now we know even more um, from the Southern Hemisphere, we see different stars. I mean, we see the Southern Cross. You guys don't. But we can't see the North Star from where in, in Australia. But also, when we look at it, um, when you take a slow motion photography, you can see that the stars revolve counterclockwise in the North, but in the South, you see the opposite. They rotate clockwise because we're on the opposite side of a spinning ball. This is very well known. So, see, flat earthers can't bluff me because I've actually been, I actually grew up in Australia and New Zealand. I just wonder if these guys have ever been north, uh, south of, of um, say, Texas. They probably haven't, you know. Uh, and then look at the, this is our flag. You, you, are, you cannot see this constellation from here, the Southern Cross. Because anyone in Australia and New Zealand knows what the Southern Cross is. Because we're on the opposite side of the globe. You can't see it because the Earth's in the way. We can't see Polaris, the North Star, because the Earth is in the way. You see, so again, it's just, um, 
a bizarre thing, and it's really, I think, destructive to the Christian, uh, to, to the credibility of Christian Christianity, which is why I think atheists have started this, uh, this modern movement off, and I'm afraid some um, professing Christians have fallen down on this bandwagon, unfortunately. Uh, so let's, uh, if you Google Flat Earth, refute Flat Earth, guess what comes up? Is number one. Our article, a very detailed paper that I, I wrote with a colleague, uh, Dr. Robert Carter, on the evidence against a flat earth and for a round earth. And to summarize here, the Bible doesn't teach it, the church never taught it, and the leading promoters today are anti-Christian, and it's, and it's absolute scientific nonsense. Okay, so that's really um, not the best thing to go into, so please resist it. Okay, now, when it comes to the question time, just to, to make a... Well, the only rule I really have is that what you say has to end in a question mark, all right? <laughs> and just to, to remind you, um, here's a, a book which I think well, is going to be very useful in answering questions. is the Creation Answers book. I see a few of those are still left, which is, is fortunate because actually answers. We, we wrote this book because this is what people keep on asking us in question time. We were trying to answer a question that people had instead of answering questions that no one's ever thought of. And as I said, it's part of the starter pack, which is, basically has a refuting evolution plus a, almost a free DVD in this pack. So Excellent. who wants to ask a question? We have two microphones here. So John's going to be manning one on this side of the room. Clayton's got one over there. And uh, do we've got Dr. Sarfati uh, till 3.30 exactly. He has another engagement after this, so he's not able to stick around and answer questions after. So if you have a question, now is the time. Uh, raise your hand, and one of these gentlemen will come over and make sure you're heard. Hi. Um, <clears throat> earlier today you mentioned the, um, uh, an argument that I grew up with uh, that is not necessarily a valid argument against evolution, and that would be the um, sterility of hybrids, sterility of hybrids and reversion mm. type. That's how I think I remember learning it. So that isn't a very strong argument after all. Well, I mean, I'm not sure. So really, the point is the hybrids came from uh, the same created kind. That's the thing. So, I mean, the hybrids show that the animals must be the same created kind. They're varieties of the same created kind. That's what, I, what the illustration of, of hybrid I was using. It actually shows you that the created kind is much broader than the so-called species. And that's the main argument I had with, uh, with that. Uh, I'm not sure what your argument was. Uh, I must, I'm not sure about that one. Sorry. Just that I uh, was under the impression that hybrids were always sterile. Well, the thing is, uh, hybrids aren't always. Even a mule is mostly sterile, but it's occasionally a mule can have a baby. And ligers, female ligers can have babies. The wolfins had babies. So sometimes hybrids are not sterile. I guess it depends on how uh, distinct the different parts are. But the fact that we have any hybrid, whether sterile or not, still shows they're part of the same created kind. So any hybrid at all is proof that they're the same created kind. Now, it doesn't, the reverse doesn't true. Just because things don't form a hybrid doesn't mean they're not the same created kind, because sometimes there are, there are humans who can't have children together. They're the same created kind, obviously. So there might be other things. But I'm saying if they can have an offspring, then they are the same created kind. Go ahead. Yes, ma'am. Go ahead, go ahead. Oh, hello. Um, would you be able to go over the irreducibly complex, some irreducibly complex systems and an argument that I could pose to someone who believes in evolution? 
the irreducibly complex thing, um, well, I think you find a few of our books to, to cover the irreducible complex. And what that means is that something couldn't work unless all the parts were already functioning. Okay, so see, natural selection is supposed to select if something had an advantage over the previous thing, it'll be selected for. That's the theory. But if something can't has no function unless everything is working together, then natural selection cannot help it get there because all the steps would not have have any advantage until they're all working together. So that's a problem with a lot of different things. You see, the, a motor is something that works only if all the parts are working together, as I mentioned. And the same with things like the DNA decoding machines. You need to have both the instructions and the machines. So the whole genetic system is irreducibly complex. So quite a few of the things I talked about in the last talk would be examples of irreducible complexity. And the video we have called Evolution's Achilles Heel has some more animations to illustrate uh, how complex genetics is and how complex even the simplest living cell is. Evolution's Achilles Heel, which has a free study guide online, might be something you you could uh, uh, show to someone. And, of course, study yourself. Because when people ask me things like, uh, uh, what's the best book to give to someone? I say the book you're going to read first yourself. Yeah, I think it's then you can talk to someone about it if you've read it yourself. Question. There's a lady down here who's... Uh, yeah, there. Can you dispel the um, myth that humans came from um, monkeys? Uh, the myth that humans came from monkeys, uh, well, okay, well, well, well the evolutionists believe that, uh, they might say they came from a, uh, monkeys and apes and humans came from a common ancestor, but let's face it, if you saw the common ancestor, you'd probably call it a monkey or an ape if you saw it, what they propose. So I'm, I'm not, I haven't really got a problem with that, even though some evolutionists might whinge about it. I don't think it's a, it's a problem. But the point is, there are a lot of different things that are different about humans and monkeys and apes. Uh, one thing, the obvious one is our language. There's a huge difference. I mean, uh, you can possibly teach ape some, some so-called sign language, but it's really not sign language, okay? There are certain things apes can't do that even a little child can do. See, one thing that a child can do is a, it's called the Sally Ann experiment where you, you actually have a child looking on a doll who hides something and another doll comes in and where would she look? She'd look for the last time she saw it. So, so a child can put herself in the mind of someone else. The ape can't do that. And also, a child can have uh, concepts within concepts. Like, I mean, I saw uh, Sally hit the ball. You see, hit the ball and Sally are a concept within I saw. So I saw Sally hit the ball. That's something humans can do from a very young age. Apes can't, can't, can't possibly understand it. It's totally beyond any, the cleverest ape to understand it. Then you have the fossil record. You see, what we have in the fossil record seems to be either totally human or totally Australopithecine. It's not in between. It's either one or the other. And when you go to things like Neanderthals, Homo erectus, the the uh, Denisovan, they are fully human. They're varieties of modern human. And then you have the Australopithecines like Lucy. They are quite different. And all the different characteristics where they, they correct, they see, it seems that things fall one or the other, not in between. And so, so Australopithecines on one side and the real humans on the other, but nothing in between, which is what the evolutionists must need. 
Okay, so that would be the, the a summary of it. There's also articles on our website, of course, on these sorts of things. But yeah, it's a, it's a, a huge gap. And even, so it's interesting, Darwin's own co-discoverer, Alfred Wallace, didn't believe that humans could have evolved because he said that the, 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 the lowest human is so much better than the highest ape uh, that, that the gap couldn't be crossed by natural means, he thought. And I think he's right there. Question. Isn't it, isn't it true that, that some of Darwin's final writings uh, were such that he admitted that he could not prove his theories? They were unprovable. Well, okay, see, Darwin, uh, it's an interesting question, but Darwin was sort of a Victorian gentleman who wanted to think he was being, people to think he was being open-minded. So in his book, Origin of Species, he had a chapter about difficulties with the theory to pretend that he actually had considered all the objections and answered them, but I think it wasn't really genuine. And I think the, the claim that he recanted on his deathbed is just not historically valid, okay? It's one of the arguments we tell people not to use is that Darwin recanted on his death. I'm not saying that you said that, I'm just saying that's an argument which I think is is a dubious one. So I don't. I think Darwin would seem to be. Um, he, he as he rejected Christianity, he embraced evolution. He, he became to, came to despise Christianity. And the problem is, the Christianity he despised was actually old Earth Christianity because that was what people. Would t- the Church of England by that time was already teaching an old Earth. And if you have an old Earth, you have death and suffering always with us. And you see, how do you reconcile a loving God with the, a, lo- a loving God with the God of an old earth where you've got death and suffering for millions of years? You've got a problem when you had death and suffering long before Adam committed a sin. And that was a church that he was familiar with. So a lot of his arguments are against that sort of compromise. So people who think if we just compromise on the age of the earth, we might win people over. Well, it didn't work with Darwin. So why would it work today? Okay, question. Yes, sir. So you used to have a resource, a DVD, that was called something like Arguments Creationists Should Not Make. Do you guys still yes. have that available? I think it's still around, but again, it's an older DVD, so it's the, we've got more modern ways of making DVD, more uh, better CGI, for instance, that we had. So we're, we're probably moving away from a lot of these straight lectures. There is such a DVD, I wrote it, did it myself, that you called Arguments Creationists Should Not Use. And I don't think we have it with us. There's only so much we can take on ministry. But I think if it's something we didn't have, we could let you have that postage free. And there's also a web, an article on our website, again, called Arguments Creationists Should Not Use. Creation.com slash don't use is our page on arguments we shouldn't use. Yes, that do, one. Do you remember, I know you don't have a lot of time, but do you remember two or three of those? That you just... Okay, one of them is that uh, uh, some Japanese fishermen fished up a plesiosaur near, uh, off the coast of New Zealand. No, it wasn't. It was a basking shark. And the way a basking shark rots is gills fall off and therefore leaves that uh, narrow neck uh, which impersonates a plesiosaur very superficial. But it clearly was a basking shark. And we know that because we actually had one wash up on a beach in Kaikoura in uh, uh, the east uh, of the South Island. Uh, but in fact, a creationist was the one who discovered it. But it's clearly a basking shark that was rotting in that same shape. Um, that's one of them. Uh, I'm trying to think of other ones. I wrote, to, I wrote the article, uh, after all. Um, moon dust. The, the, the thickness of moon dust proves a younger. But again, that was using old uh, estimates of the accumulation of moon dust. That was a problem. But now, it seems the moon dust argument isn't an argument either way. 
It could be either way. So therefore you need something else to show a young earth. The moon dust is not conclusive either way. So those are some arguments we should not uh, use. That's a few of the ones. I mean, also some arguments which are, which are sort of not really creation-related, but we still advise don't use it, uh, claims that we didn't really go to the moon. Uh, that's complete nonsense, I'm afraid, yeah. Um, in fact, anyone sort of my age or over knows it's complete nonsense because we remember how bad video technology was back in the day. So we know they had rockets, very powerful rockets. What we didn't have is, is powerful video technology to fake what we saw. Yeah, so uh, that's an argument we say, please don't use. See, one thing about the flat earth in general is see, we are a pro-Bible ministry. We're not anti-establishment for the sake of being anti-establishment. We are pro-Bible. That is our focus, you see. And we're only anti-establishment if the establishment goes against the Bible, but not for its own sake. Okay, so yeah, please be pro-Bible and not just anti-something for the sake of being anti-something. I think that's, that's a message we try to, to get across. Question. Here you go. Um, so I've heard it with people who are trying to rationalize evolution with the Bible. Yeah. Um, I've heard it said that Adam and Eve evolved, and huh. then it wasn't until they reached the stage of being Adam and Eve that they became human. And then when it talks about um, death coming from Adam's sin, it's only referring to human death and not um, animal death. Okay, but, okay, there's several things there. I've even got to talk about the whole talk just about, I'm doing that at the seminary tomorrow, the, the, um, Detroit Baptist Seminary. I'm doing a talk on that sort of thing. Now, the thing is, clearly, as I said this, were you here this morning? Just asking the, the, you were. Yeah, remember I said that Paul explicitly said that Adam was the first man. He's not one of, of an evolving series. He's called the first man. He's made from a dust. He's made from inanimate matter. And that's why God could say, you were made from dust, now you're going to return to the dust you were made from. See, if Adam came from an ape, uh, when he dies, he has to become an ape again. That's the logic. If, ape, if dust means ape, then he goes back to being an ape when he dies. Uh, sorry, it doesn't make any, any sense. And the other thing is, yeah, okay, if, you, if it's only human death that came from Adam, that's still a problem because you've got human fossils dated now to 330,000 years ago. So they're actually, the, the, the long-age view puts human death before Adam. If you accept the dating methods that give you an old earth, those same dating methods put human death long before Adam could have existed. I mean, there's no way you can stretch Adam's timeline back to 330,000 years. And also, as human people have died through sinful means, you've got evidence of cannibalism, murder. So you've got sinful human death before Adam's sin. So uh, those are some severe problems. I think a lot of people who um, try to attack the biblical view have overlooked the problem of human death before Adam's sin. Because that alone is enough to show their theory it can't be sustained. So I hope that's helped somewhat. Uh, of course, my Genesis commentary talks a bit about that too. Because uh, I've got a, a, some quite a lot of sections about death and what does death mean in the Bible and why it's incompatible with any sort of evolution or millions of years. I go into the issue of death and human death and all these different things in this commentary as well. Who's got a question then? Yeah, okay. So, uh, focusing on human death in the, in the fossil record. So, it, it's specifically humans uh, created in the image of God, not humanoid. Because I've, I've heard the theory that there were 
um, you know, God created the world, and then through there were human like you know mm-hmm. as common ancestors. But then God changed with Adam and Eve. <clears throat> he changed uh, them to be in His image in that way. So you're. So okay, the, again, the point is, I mean, you don't get that from the Bible, do you? You can't possibly get this idea from the Bible. It's quite clearly a rationalization to fit in with secular science. But the thing is, you're not going to please a secular scientist who don't want to have anything to do with God. So you're not pleasing, you're not faithful to the Bible, but you're also not faithful to evolutionary theory either. So you basically, it's the worst of both worlds. It really is a destructive point of view because it doesn't really give you any respect anywhere. But also, I mean, when you say a humanoid didn't have it, like Dr. Hugh Ross, he wants to add millions of years to the Bible. He's from reasons to believe. But the thing is, he said, oh, they weren't really, didn't have soul. Well, how could he possibly know from the bones whether it had a soul? It makes no sense. And these Homo sapiens fossils, I mean, they had intelligence. They buried their dead. They, they certainly looked like they, had, they were human in everything else. Human in intelligence, human in emotion. They had religious uh, ceremonies. Uh, they made music. They made superglue. The Neanderthals made superglue. They made cosmetics. Is it, I mean, they hadn't a soul. How could you possibly say that? I mean, there's no evidence from the bones or the artifacts that they didn't have a soul. Okay, so I think it's a very desperate thing to try to, and, it, and as I say, it doesn't get you very far anyway. So that's what I'm just saying. Is it's, these compromises really don't work? As well as undermining what the Bible tells you, they just don't work anyway. Okay? Question. And the books will be, these will be available for a very short time afterwards, but I do have to be somewhere else. But yeah, go ahead. Oh, sorry. Yes, please. Go ahead, ma'am. No, please, please, please. Okay. Um, I don't know if you've already touched on it, so sorry if you have, but um, I'm on your guys' website right now, and it says, okay, so like, let's say I'm someone who believes that we came from apes. Yes. Um, so it says if we evolved from apes, why are there still apes today? Like, how would you explain Okay, that? actually, that reminds me. That's an argument that we say creation should not use, okay? The argument is uh, if we evolved from apes or monkeys, why are there still apes or monkeys? So that's one of the arguments I should have mentioned when you asked me about arguments creation should not use. You see, the evolutionists don't believe it's one single population evolving into another. They believe that most of the evolution happened in small, isolated populations that are, that are split off from the main one. They believe that most of the evolution happens in the small, isolated, geographically isolated population. So there's nothing in evolutionary theory that says the, the apes as a whole stayed apes and this small group, which split off from them, then became humans. It's actually not a problem for the evolutionists to, to say. I mean, I don't believe in it, obviously, for reasons I expansion, but it's not a problem for evolutionists. Okay, so that's an argument we advise uh, you know, that we should not use. It's, it's sort of not what evolutionists actually um, have a problem with. Okay, there's one down here, right? Yeah, I'll get to you, okay. Um, the, um, something you brought up this morning with, an, with certain animal species, <clears throat> in fact, it was dinosaurs that had um, someone constructed an entire creature from a single bone. Uh, and uh, I remember, that I think it was Java Man or one of those, that mm-hmm. the, yeah. entire, the entire being was created from what turned out to be the tooth of an extinct pig. Uh, that was the Piltdown Man. Piltdown. Oh, yes. Okay. Yeah. And um, so um, today, I, I guess what I'm wondering is, are there arguments today that evolutionists, are use, evolutionists use that are very... Uh, recent that you know of that um, they're putting forth as uh, 
you know, evidence of a transitional form. I think it's actually very important to understand when, when you see this evidence of evolution, you really got to find out what actually it was based on. What is the evidence actually for uh, the evolution they claim? I'm going to try and find um, something about this. If I remember what, what slide I have it on. I did have a slide which really shows conclusively um, that they do go by um, things which have very little evidence for them. I'm going to try and find the thing for you, though. It involves a whale evolution. I've got to try and find it, though. Yeah, here, here, here is one. Okay, I'll, I'll show you. This is an example of the whale evolution. This is supposed to be the uh, Pachycetus. Pachycetus means whale from Pakistan. This is the picture that a lot of school teachers would have seen as proof of evolution of whales from land creatures. It looks quite convincing when you see the picture there. I mean, it's got paws, but it's still in the sea. It's chasing fish, you see. But what was this based on? Well, here is all they had at the time. Nothing below the neck. You see, again, nothing below the neck. So how could they possibly know any of this when they didn't have any postcranial bones? And in fact, it's even worse because they only found these parts here. Everything else is reconstructed. This is the whale from Pakistan. It's based on this, a few pieces of the skull and jaw and teeth. And then they found more of it. But here's what the, the, the amazing thing they said. Uh, in time and morphology or shape, Pachycetus is perfectly intermediate, the missing link between early land mammals and later fully-fledged whales. But let's see what happened ten years, seven years on when they found more bones of this creature. Here's what they found. A lot more bones. And now this is what they believe it looked like. So here's your whale from Pakistan, people. Okay, it should be a real lesson to you. When you find more bones, these things don't—they become less and less like intermediates. When you find more, most of the intermediate things are based on fragmentary material. Okay, so Pakistan is a good one uh, about that. My book, Refuting Evolution, Chapter Five, talks about this too. So that's a, one reason to get this uh, starter pack. It has my Refuting Evolution, which has that sequence of, of fossils there. Okay, who question back there was there? Yeah, I was curious um, about creatures who only live uh, for a very short amount of time, like yes. less than 24 hours, and also those which seem to be designed specifically as like garbage garbage cleaners, or they feast on, on death. Were mm-hmm. they created after the fall, or were they... Well, I mean, the, the thing is, that the chapter 6 of the Creation Answers book talks about the origin of, of the defense attack structures in this fallen world. So chapter 6 of this, I can go into a bit of that, um, but the thing is, God foreknew the fall, so God designed creatures that he knew would, uh, for things that would exist in the fall, but were not originally used for that. I mean, one example uh, is things like you know, the teeth and sharp claws. I'll show you something. And see if you can work out what this creature is. <clears throat> What's that, do you think? Look at the sharp teeth there. I mean, they're very sharp teeth. And these are carnastials, which are supposedly used for slicing uh, meat. You see the carnastial teeth there for carnivores. This is a carnivore skull. Officially, it's a carnivore. But what do you think this is? No, no. I understand why you say that, but no, it's not a T-Rex, no. It's actually a fruit bat. So sharp teeth, but it eats fruit. You see, but just because it has sharp teeth doesn't mean it, could, it had to eat uh, meat with it. And you've got this other thing here. Uh, bears have teeth designed for eating meat, but their diet consists mainly of plants. 
Maybe that's because they were designed to eat plants, after all, um, because that's what they do. Uh, palm nut vultures mostly eats palm nuts. It's a vulture, a bird of prey. Another bird of prey is called the oil bird, and that's exclusively vegetarian. A vegetarian bird of prey that also has echolocation. That's an interesting one. And even the class of dinosaurs that includes the T-Rex, they're called the theropod dinosaurs. Uh, this creature called the therizinosaurids, these seem to be plant eaters. They, they thought they were meat eaters, but they turned out to be plant eaters. Uh, so a lot of different things there. Now, what about things like um, poison? I mean, the point to understand with the poison is the dose makes the toxin. Very important to understand because you've got people scaremongering about vaccination, for instance, because oh, they've got mercury in it. But in fact, it's always the dose that makes the poison. You eat things all the time that have chemicals in them that will be poisonous if you had about a thousand times the amount of it. So like, just like the flu shot, if you had a thousand flu shots, you might get mercury poison, but not before. And you had to have to have them in all in one week because otherwise the body gets rid of it, okay? See, so things like even oxygen and water can be toxic if you have large enough amounts. <clears throat> you can have water toxic. People have died from over drinking water. It becomes toxic. Uh, okay, so the, and then the thing is, in small doses, the so-called toxins can be very helpful. I mean, you've got Botox, um, is botulinum toxin, which is the deadliest substance on earth. I mean, the tiniest amount of botulism is what will kill you than any, anything else. But in fact, they use it uh, for anti-wrinkle because it paralyzes muscles. So this is an anti-wrinkling thing. Ma asked Nancy Pelosi about that, right? Okay. Um, and the thing is, um, the, the anti-hypertensive drug called the, the group called the ACE inhibitors, that was derived from snake venom. I mean, it's, uh, one part component of snake venom was developed into antihypertensive drugs, you see. So in, in the right amount, sometimes these so-called poisons can actually be beneficial. So you, before you talk about poison, you must tell me how much you have. A poison by itself means nothing unless you tell me the dose of the substance. Okay, so that's an example uh, of why there'd be poisons in a in a creationist perspective. And who's got a question? Okay, yes. Um, you gave the example uh, very helpful of the T Rex blood cells, mm-hmm. um, soft tissue, and one of our college students had a great question. I I thought they might answer ask it. Uh, they had read something about uh, a possible solution from an evolutionist perspective being iron in the blood. Yeah, I, I, I mentioned that in Sunday school, though. I mentioned that's called the phantom reaction, which would destroy certain things that they claim they found there. So you can't have it both ways. You can't have oh, this reaction occurring and causing preservation, but not destroying other things we know this reaction does. You, you can't have it both ways. You, I mean, there's no organic chemist there to try and pres- uh, stop the thing doing one thing when it's going to do the other. It's going to make it do one thing and not the other. It's, it's just not going to happen. It? From a chemical point of view, it often takes um, chemical know-how uh, to stop the side reactions going on. You see, if I'm trying to make, say, a protein, I often you, uh, the organic chemists who make proteins they have to put protecting groups on certain parts to stop a reaction going on and then remove the protecting groups after the reactions happen. You see, that's a very common problem to try to make proteins or DNA is all these different steps of protecting and unprotecting. But to preserve um, by natural process, there's no there's no organic chemist making sure this is going to happen. It, just, it makes no sense whatsoever, sorry. And on our website, we've got uh, stuff on that too, uh, refuting that iron preservation claim. Okay, you guys, go ahead. 
I'm sorry, did you uh, touch on uh, carbon-14 dating? Yeah, I, I could talk, touch on that. Uh, it's also chapter 4 of this book, so there's a bit of a hint for you there. I mean, see what I mean about this book being quite a useful thing? But one thing about carbon-14, it decays really quickly, okay? It's a very fast-decaying uh, radioactive substance. And the thing is, that they talk about half of Half-life is the time for half the stuff to decay. So after two half-lives, you've got a quarter, then you have an eighth and a sixteenth. So after, um, say, 20 half-lives, you've got only a, a, a million of what you had before. And carbon-14 starts off as one in a trillion carbon atoms. So after 20 half-lives, you shouldn't be able to detect any carbon-14. And the half-life of carbon-14 is 5,730 years. So after about 100,000 years, it should be undetectable. But yet, it's found in things which are claimed to be much older. Like, you know, the diamond is a type of carbon. You realize that? I mean, graphite, your so-called pencil lead, is a type of carbon. You see, you can't get lead poisoning from chewing pencils. There's no lead there. I'm not recommending chewing pencils. I'm just saying you can't get lead poisoning from it, okay? Now, diamond is a very hard substance. It's actually the hardest substance on Earth, apart from the human heart. And they're supposed to be over a billion years old. And it also, it's a closed system. Being so hard, nothing is going to get in or out of the diamond once it's formed, okay? Uh, but the thing is, the diamonds all have carbon-14 in them, which means they can't have existed long enough for carbon-14 to have decayed. The fact that we're finding carbon-14 shows they can't be even a million years old, let alone billions of years old, which means the rocks they're in also can't be billions of years old, as they claim, which means any rock above them can't be older either. See, if they're found below, obviously the rock above them is younger, so that, that so everything under, uh, above them is also much younger than they claim. So I wrote an article a long time ago now uh, called Diamonds, a Creationist's Best Friend. Creation.com slash diamond. But it first came out in Creation Magazine, that I want to remind you about. And there's a page, uh, a, a box here, which is answering evolutionary objections. I mean, I'm a chess master. I try and think about uh, a few moves ahead. What are they going to say? Here's how to answer it. So five one half-life is 5730. That's one half-life of carbon-14. So that's what I mean. It's a very, it's, it's a best-known dating method. But the fact is, as I said, if you've got carbon-14, it's not, it's disproving millions of years, not proving it. Just as the way it works. <clears throat> okay, let's see. How would you answer somebody who uses the uh, fossil record and claims that, you know, the uh, way down in the fossil record, there's only very, you know, simple organisms and they get more complex than are in uh, sequential groups. Okay, but again, all you've got, see, that's a question of the fossil record. At the best, you have gradation and complexity. You haven't got evolution there. There's no evolutionary uh, changes there. But also, I dispute that they are that uh, simple down below because you have the, at the so-called Cambrian layers, you've got every representative of every vertebrate phylum there um, in the Cambrian. You've got a hycoicthus at the bottom of the of the fossil record just about. It's a type of fish and it's a vertebrate and that's at the bottom. And you have the trilobite which has the most complicated eyes ever seen in nature. And that's the so-called primitive water bug with these amazingly complicated eyes. And the predator, the Anomalocaris, had amazing compound eyes. I mean, more sophisticated than any insect today except for the dragonfly which is also supposedly a, a primitive insect. So, I mean, 
I don't see that as simple to complex as they think. But also, the flood began, fountains of the great deeps. So I would expect the first things to be fossilized are the things that are the bottom dwellers. And then the fish. The most common vertebrate fossil is a fish because the flood began in the ocean. And then I expected to see uh, it creeps on the land and therefore kills things on the border between land and water, the amphibians. And then you might find the reptiles next, you see. Um, mammals tend to have more sophisticated hearing. I mean, like rats deserting a sinking ship. They may have heard the earthquake waves cause out to sea and actually try to flee to higher ground. I think mean, humans were a bit uh, not so lucky because they would have built near the rivers and therefore would have been among the first to be washed away and therefore they'd, they'd bloat and they'd rot, they wouldn't be buried. So that's why I think you have very few humans in the flood fossil record. The human fossils are always, um, all ones we have seem to be post-flood, not flood. Okay, so those are a few um, brief things about the fossil sequence and why the flood would actually produce such a thing. What's the best way to approach a conversation about, like, all the excitement with them possibly finding cells on Mars and life? Mm-hmm. But those, some of those same people won't acknowledge conception with the baby, that being life. Oh, there's a lot of blindness. It's actually very anti-intellectual. A lot of the arguments that you see uh, are just anti-intellectual. I mean, they have no problem understanding that, say, a bald eagle is a bald eagle from conception. It's a crime to destroy a bald eagle egg, but it's actually you get government funding to destroy human egg, a fertilized human egg. In fact, you get government funding to destroy a human um, even at a time when the baby's viable outside the womb. Okay, so there's an incredible uh, depravity going on in this country where uh, arbitrarily the Supreme Court 40 plus years ago decided that, that unborn babies weren't really human. Well, just the Supreme Court um, before the Civil War decided that black people weren't really human in the Dred Scott versus Sanford decision, you see. Um, during World War II, they decided that, that Japanese were subhuman and could be imprisoned without any criminal uh, conviction. So, you, so, uh, so it's a really depravity going on there. But the abortion holocaust is really something uh, to, for the for, really demands national repentance. Um, there, there's no intellectual. It's, it's, it's clearly a, a spiritual warfare thing, not an intellectual position. They have to. I mean, how often when you hear a pro-abortion politician, how often do you hear them even addressing what the what's being destroyed? Very rarely. They try and avoid that uh, and all say, oh, it's the right of a woman, it's a woman's body. No, it's not a woman's body. It's a different body. It's got different DNA, different blood group. Um, sometimes it has male sex organs. I mean, you say the woman's partly male. Well, she's, got, she's bearing a, a son. She's, well, the son has male organs, right? So uh, the, there's no intellectual basis. It's, it's purely an, an anti, you know, really anti-gone thing behind the abortion holocaust. Yeah. Yes, ma'am. Are you familiar with a paleontologist named Jack Horner, and how would you, as a creation scientist, uh, respond to him? And I am my understanding is he's a staunch evolutionist. Well, you know, if you did you see that Mary Schweitzer clip on sixty minutes? You saw that in the in the in the first session today. We did. I mustered up the courage to tell Jack that was Jack Horner. That was Jack Horner, yes. Um, he's actually done some interesting work. Now, he's a sort of evolution, but he's done some really fascinating work. And one thing that he's done that actually helps the creationists a bit, actually, he doesn't mean to, but he does, 
uh, is this thing here. He's discovered uh, that dinosaurs changed shape when they grew. It's very interesting because at one time these three things had different names, but they're clearly different stages at the growth of the growth of the same creature. He said the, the Dracorex was a baby, Stegomolok was a teenager, so I was adolescent, and the Pachycephalosaurus was the, the mature adult, and they're the same creature. So he says that a third of dinosaur species may never have existed, but are merely different stages in the growth of other known dinosaurs. And I actually listened to Jack Horner's TED talk where he, he, he explained how he, he can tell the difference between growing bone, which looks much spongier in appearance, with mature bone that looks dense. So he could tell what parts were growing and what parts were mature. So this is quite interesting work he's done. I know he's an atheist and evolutionist, um, but, but still doesn't mean we can't make use of some of the, the research he's done. Maybe, sorry? I didn't hear that, sorry. They're not? I wouldn't know. Oh, wow, okay. I did not know that. Yeah. One more question, I think, and then I have a bit of time to browse uh, some of the books I mentioned, and then we have to pack up and get to uh, the next church. So we've probably got to, we could say, uh, I had the book table open for maybe 20 minutes, and then we've got to pack up and get me ready for the next thing, yeah. Who's who's next? Who, yeah, yes, sir. Yeah, when we look at uh, non-Christians, you know, the thing they look at evolution is like something to support their belief system but when in your experience do you see as the biggest reason why a christian would uh look at evolution and not take the literal uh interpretation of scripture why well first of all many christians haven't heard the alternative that i presented they haven't they've only heard evolution assumed as fact because they've never heard anything different uh, I think that's the main thing, but also there's the idea of wanting academic respectability. You see, if you if you say you believe the Bible from start to finish, you can't get respectability in the academic world, even in the so-called Christian universities. Most of them, unfortunately, and there are not many there are not many Christian universities that I actually trust. I mean, Detroit Baptist is one I would trust. You see, that's actually a very sound university seminary, but a lot of them I just wouldn't trust because they're too willing to appease the world, the world, and they get nothing in return for it I'll tell you one little thing about my own experience Trinity Western University in British Columbia in Canada I spoke there uh, at a public meeting and I've had I was more rudely treated by the staff there than by a staff at a secular university that's how hostile the so-called Christian university was uh, to a biblical presentation and unfortunately um the parents association and alumni association heard me and they thought I, was, I handled them fine but they were not impressed they were should I send my kids to this university if this is what the, the staff are like there they were happy with what I taught so they're saying well why isn't what I teach at this Christian university and instead we're getting this hostility towards it and then you know, see they lost a court case about whether they should uh, allow homosexual practicing homosexual students so they've even abandoned the morality so they start by abandoning biblical history they've now abandoned biblical morality and are actually okay with homosexual students instead of before they had a stand saying that you know, marriage is the only place uh, for man and woman to, to, to get together okay quite as we would agree but now they've abandoned that 
know, so, so it's a really sad situation. So it's very little that stops. Once they start um, drifting on the Genesis account, they, they're going to drift elsewhere. And you find most of the seminaries that are teaching that Jesus didn't rise from the dead, he wasn't God, they, they long ago abandoned Genesis. The next generation abandons New Testament. They're just being consistent, you see. They're treating New Testament uh, with the same consistency as they treat Genesis. Science says men don't rise. Science says virgins don't conceive. So we've got to trust the scientists. Yeah, okay. That might be a good time to finish, do you think? So, All right. Everybody, let's show our appreciation for, for Dr. Jonathan Sarkozy.